Welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, what is up? How you doing, Aaron? It's good to see you this morning. It's not a bloody morning, unlike the last three mornings that we've shot, so... Thank God for that one, eh? Yes. Um, well, if you're joining us for the first time, Hypergrowth Investing is a weekly podcast that picks Luke's brain of the hypergrowth investment trends and innovations. Electric vehicles, cryptocurrency, the metaverse, nothing is off limits in this innovative podcast. We go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator and lifelong learner, and and Luke, I got to say the feedback from our first few episodes has been remarkable. You know, even talking to friends, some of whom are in the investment space, some who aren't, uh, they're getting a ton of value from these conversations. Uh, the world just wants to listen to authentic, down to earth chit chat about interesting topics. And that's what we're trying to do here. There's, there's no sales pitch. There's no aggressive marketing. There's nothing that's cheesy or over the top or hyperbolic. It's just you and me talking about the most interesting things on this planet, which in my opinion are hypergrowth technological trends, the companies pioneering them and the stocks behind those companies. So yeah, not, not surprised we get positive feedback because we're we're talking about really cool stuff here, and I'm, I'm very happy to be doing it with you. Well, to your credit, I think it's also a testament to the sheer amount of information you process and sift through on a daily basis. And again, that you're willing to share with just, you know, everyone. Uh, yeah, you know, so one of, one of my favorite things is that I like to write things down. I know I'm all about technology and I'm like all about digital this, digital that. But at the end of the day, I, I love a G2 Pilot 1.0 pen. Don't give me that 0.7 stuff. That's too thin. I like I like the thick pen. And I just write down every day all these notes on all these different stuff. And as you can see, it's just, I mean. <laughs> For our audio listeners, uh, Luke has got a giant book just full of notes that I don't even want to know. How, it's supposed how, to be a sketchbook. How long have you had that? Uh, well, I get a new one like every three months. So that's how often I go through these things. Wow. Uh, it's supposed to be a sketchbook, just blank pages. And it allows me to just write down all the information I process every day. Because when I write something down, I feel like I can retain it better, understand it better. Uh, it's one thing to read it. And if you read something online, or you read something on wherever you read it. And you think you understand it. Mm -hmm. But then... 10 minutes later, maybe you, you forget it or you don't remember what it was. You don't really understand how it works. But if you read something and then are forced to write it down, you kind of have to second think, okay, do I really understand what I'm writing down? Do I really understand why, for example, when I was studying Virgin Orbit, you know, atmospheric density and why mm -hmm. it, it's closer to the earth and it's heavier as opposed to farther away from the earth. And I'm writing it down. I'm like, of course that makes sense. You know, physics 101. And so when you write it down, you really kind of, you check yourself to make sure you really understand what's going on. So that's why I love to write things down. But yeah, that's, you know, I process a lot of information every single day and I, I love doing it. It's absolutely uh, exhilarating, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Well, I think to that point, uh, you know, for our viewers who learn by listening or learn by watching, you know, it's the same thing, whether they might hear about, you know, some of the topics that we talk about, they might read about it, but unless they're getting it in a way that's communicating to them the way that they want to hear it, you know, it's not going to do a lot. So I'm glad that we're providing something that uh, is having an impact on our viewers. 
Yes, 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 indeed, Aaron. But enough chit chat. Let's talk about some stocks. Let's go. Let's get into it. Hypergrowth stocks. You're a huge I, fan of them. You know, hence the name I, of this I, podcast, Hypergrowth Investing. You know, uh, before we get into specifics of what's happened in the last few months in the hypergrowth sector, you know, I think that it's a little bit of a benefit to our viewers. You know, what does it mean to be a hypergrowth stock? Uh, quite simply, you're growing very quickly. The okay. company. The company behind that stock, the company of that stock is mm -hmm. growing its revenues very, very quickly, right? And what is very quickly? So, I mean, you could say average growth in the S&P 500 for corporate revenues is about uh, anywhere from 5 to 10% per year, depending on the year. If you're seeing a company that's growing at consistent double digits, maybe 10 to 15%, you could probably consider that a growth stock. Hyper growth stock, we're personally looking for... 15% plus growth and oftentimes 20% plus growth. So what I would define as a hyper growth stock is a company that is consistently growing revenues north of 20% per year. Gotcha. Now, again, the, traditionally, the one of the reasons why you like these stocks is because they have that quote unquote hyper growth. Uh, mm -hmm. But these stocks have been whacked over the past few months. You know, are there opportunities in there for, you know, investments to be made when these stocks that you love are taking these kinds of hits? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing enormous opportunities in the hyper growth tech sector of the market. In fact, um, in my entire investing career, I think this is probably the single best buying opportunity I have ever seen for long-term investors. Near-term volatility will probably persist. Things will probably remain choppy. But in a three, five, seven-year window, buying at these prices, some of these stocks is absolutely... Um, it's one of the best financial decisions I think anybody can make right now. So uh, we're recommending folks buy the dip in certain hypergrowth tech stocks. Um, it reminds us a lot of the 2001, 2002 wipeout mm -hmm. uh, in tech stocks, right? Remember back then, you have to understand that when markets move, they move in like huge waves. So a rising tide lifts all ships and a sinking tide drowns all of them. Mm -hmm. Now, problem they're in is that you get indiscriminate buying and selling. So let's go back to 2000, 1999, 2000. You had this rising tide lifting all these tech stocks amid all this hype. It was indiscriminate buying. Investors didn't care what the company specifically did, what its fundamentals specifically were, who the man, what the management team did or what their experience was. All they cared about is if it was attached to technology, attached to the internet, had a dot-com domain. So they bought up everything, indiscriminate buying. And what that created was a bubble, which led to so much fear that in 2001, 2002, you had indiscriminate selling. So it didn't matter if the company had strong fundamentals, if the company had an amazing management team, if the company had great growth potential, great profitability potential, if it was a technology stock, mm -hmm. if it had a dot-com domain, if it was hyped up in 99, 2000, it got crushed in 2001, 2002. Now, for some of those stocks, the crushing was totally totally warranted. Mm -hmm. Pets.com, Boo.com, Webvan, totally warranted. But guess what other companies were in that massive sell-off? Amazon. Amazon stock dropped below 10 bucks in 2001, 2002, I believe. Mm -hmm. Netflix stock dropped below 10 bucks. Google, or not Google, Google hadn't IPO'd yet. Uh, Microsoft stock dropped very, very low. Uh, Apple stock dropped very, very low. So you saw these really great companies just get washed up in the sell-off when they didn't deserve to be washed up in the sell-off. They just got 
sucked into this indiscriminate fear-driven selling. And that created some enormous, amazing, once-in-a-decade buying opportunities into what ended up being the biggest stock market winners of the subsequent 20 years, right? From 2002, 2022, Apple stock, Microsoft stock, Netflix stock, Amazon stock were the market's biggest winners. We think a similar shakeout opportunity is emerging today. Um, because of rising interest rates, the fear of rising interest rates, because of the fear of inflation, because of the fear of tighter monetary policy um, and extended valuations in the tech sector and the massive run up that tech stocks had in 2000, um, you're seeing indiscriminate selling across fear driven, indiscriminate selling across hyper growth tech stocks. And they're just getting crushed and crushed and crushed and crushed. Some of the stocks absolutely warranted. The selling is absolutely warranted. But for others, it is not. And it's creating very, very, very good opportunities to buy what could be the market's biggest winners over the next 10 to 20 years at prices you may never see again. And I earnestly, to the bottom of my core, believe that is the case today. Now, again, I think it's important to, to separate the difference that the prices that we're seeing doesn't necessarily mean that these bu businesses aren't taking in revenue, correct? Uh, price is not truth. There, there's an old Wall Street saying that price is truth and price is not truth. Price is a reflection of near-term expectations, near-term volatility, near-term trading. Uh, eventually, price becomes truth, but price is not always truth. Um, we've talked about the dog walking example, the fundamentals in, in the, the stock price, right? Mm -hmm. The person is the fundamentals. It's going to go on a walk in a very orderly fashion. The dog is the stock price. It's going to go all over the place. Five steps ahead, five steps behind, stop and take a piss, stop and sniff the grass, whatever it may do. Right now, we're seeing the dog way behind the person. The stock price is way behind the fundamentals for a lot of these companies. And yes, when you look at a stock that's getting crushed, it does not mean its fundamentals are weak. It just means the macro sentiment is weak. And a lot of these cases, what you want to find is you want to find stocks that have been crushed because of this macro sentiment, but which still are supported by very, very strong operational fundamentals where their businesses are firing on all cylinders. And we're seeing a lot of those opportunities in the market today. Can you give us a few examples of, of businesses that yeah. are doing that kind of thing? Because, again, it's one thing to talk about this thing in theory, but to have a business that illustrates, to your point, again, indiscriminate selling, but also taking in revenue and, mm -hmm. again, succeeding as a business, but that isn't reflected in its price. Right. Uh, so a great example of this would be um, Open Door. Okay. Uh, the ticker is OPEN. Now, Open Door is an iBuyer, right? And uh, it's a hyper growth stock. It's been crushed because of its hyper growth um, nature. And then there's been a lot of bare arguments against it. Like it's a low margin business. It's a capital intense business. It's a commoditized business. Um, but the way we see Open Door is as a company that is literally just an early stage Amazon for houses. Because mm -hmm. if you go back to 2001, 2002, what were they saying about Amazon? They were saying, one, it's a low margin business. It's never going to make money, which indeed it is. The, the margins on Amazon.com, the retail side, are very, very low. Two, it's a capital intense business. In order for Amazon to scale and do what it wants to do, they need to build, buy, and expand their distribution centers. They need to build all these distribution centers across the world so they can get product to people very quickly. Very capital intense. And three, it is somewhat commoditized, right? Anybody can start a website online and sell stuff online. So it's very competitive and commoditized in that sense. Yet, despite those three big things, Amazon has become a trillion dollar company. And it's done that because all these three factors don't matter if what you're doing is providing a service that is cheaper, 
faster and better for people so that more people flock to that service. Because when more people flock to that service, you get scale. And uh -huh. scale offsets low margins. If you have low margins on selling 10 products, then you're never going to have enough profits to offset your operating expenses. But if you have low margins on selling hundreds of thousands or millions of products, then all of a sudden you have enough scale to, to offset your operating expenses and be profitable. So scale fixed their, um, fix their margin problem. Uh, capital intensity, well, they were able to build these distribution centers because each distribution center had enormous ROI. The more they built distribution centers closer to your home, the faster you got goods, the more people in that neighborhood or that town flocked to Amazon, the more scale it got, the higher margins went. So distribution center capital intensity, that had high ROI, it paid off. And then commoditization, where you have network effects. So the bigger Amazon got, then it launched the Amazon Prime. It had its ecosystem. They were able to give you free same-day delivery, free two-day delivery, all that stuff. They had the Amazon Video, right? So all of a sudden, they were able to create an ecosystem around their core business, which was very sticky and kept people in the loop and allowed it to be decommoditized from the, the e-commerce industry. So Amazon essentially proved all the haters wrong and turned into the biggest stock market winner over the past 20 years. We think Open Door does the exact same thing in uh an i buy um talking about low margins same issue yes mm -hmm. they have low margins on the homes they sell because they take a five percent take rate when they when you sell a home to them and then they turn around and flip it for maybe a one to five percent margin there so um you're talking about very low margins but on scale if you sell enough homes then all of a sudden you have enough profits to offset your operating expenses same thing amazon did we think that happens uh two capital intensity uh, they got to acquire a bunch of capital or uh, raise a bunch of capital to acquire all these homes. Yes, that's a huge risk. But guess what? If it has high ROI, because the more homes they acquire, the more buyers they attract, the more homes they get to sell, then it's going to all work out in the same way it worked out with Amazon. And if you talk about number three of the quantization of the business, well, Zillow's exit from iBuying actually shows us that this is not a commoditizable business. This is very much a tech-driven, data-driven business, where if you have the best data, the best algorithms, you have a significant and large competitive advantage over peers. And Open Door has that, obviously, over Zillow, they exited. And in our experience, analyzing the models, they have it over Redfin, over Offerpad, over all the other players that are, that are trying to dabble in the space. So we really like Open Door here. They're growing super rapidly. They're expanding to different cities all across the nation. Um, their revenues are growing at a triple digit pace. Their margins are very, very healthy. But again, um, like, like a lot of growth stocks right now, price is down. You know, price is down for two reasons. Price is down because again, the hyper growth wipeout. And then two, there's concerns about the, the housing market not being on super stable footing here in 2022. Mm -hmm. Uh, we think that's inaccurate. We believe there's a lot of demand in the housing market. Uh, from the millennial demographic myself, I can tell you that there are a lot of millennials out there that have a lot of money that are just waiting on the sidelines for the first blip in the housing market. So as soon as housing prices go down two, four, five percent, boom, there is going to be a lot of demand to sap that up. And so I think that there's a lot of demand in the housing market. I'm not of the belief the Fed's going to raise rates a lot of times this year. I think rates in the big picture are going to remain lower for longer. That's going to um, increase affordability of homes and create a base for 
home prices to continue to head higher. And we're still in the midst of, of pretty big supply constraints in the housing market. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, home builders are trying to build out their capacity, but the reality is there's so much demand and so much firepower here that you're going to need a lot of supply to come online. In fact, some housing analysts, we're not of this belief, but there are some housing analysts that believe it's going to take a decade of overbuilding to uh, get the housing market back to a supply-demand balance. Mm-hmm. Um, because we didn't build for a lot of the 2010s because people were afraid to buy homes coming out of the 08 uh, financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Makes total sense. Now, all of a sudden, the entire mentality shifted. We think we're due for a decade-long housing boom. Uh, so we think a lot of the fears against open-door stock are really unwarranted right now. It's really, 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 really cheap. We really think this could be a... Our numbers suggest a a 60 to $70 billion company uh, mm-hmm. with two years. Uh, it's about a $6 billion company today. So we see enormous upside potential for long-term oriented investors in a stock like Open Door. So that, that would be an example of a stock that we would be um, pounding on the table right now to, to buy the dip. And again, just to, to again reiterate, you're looking at these, at these hyper-growth stocks, even though they grow at these exponential rates, it's a long-term investment. Um, I want to read you something real quick from... Uh, Bill Ackman, he is the head of hedge fund of Pershing Square. Um, I think it speaks a lot to you. I just want to get your take on it. Uh, Many of our best investments have emerged when other investors whose time horizons are short term discard great companies at prices that look extraordinarily attractive when one has a long term horizon. Yeah, Bill Ackman said that last week after uh, Pershing Square bought a stake in Netflix. Okay. uh, which had tanked after their earnings report due to slowing subscriber growth. So he's obviously saying, hey, we came in here and bought this dip because everyone's freaking out about Netflix's slowing subscriber growth. But in actuality, Netflix is this dominant streaming video business that's not going anywhere anytime soon. And if you have a multi-year horizon on this, this investment is going to work regardless of the slowing subscriber growth here in, in the first quarter of the of the year. So that's his thinking. And yes, we, we with respect to Netflix, we don't share that <laughs> entirely. But with respect to investments in general, uh, we we agree with that thinking. Again, it goes back to something we said um, in previous episodes in that the people that move the markets, ownership of the market is pension funds, is retail investors. Like These people are the big owners of the market mm-hmm. and they don't move all that often. They buy and hunker down. The mm-hmm. day-to-day stuff is driven by option traders, driven by hedge funds, driven by quant shops. Those guys are benchmarked against quarterly returns, annual returns. So they're all focused on trying to chase the the next best thing in in a near-term window. But the reality is that the fundamentals do not change all that often. Mm -hmm. And so you want to stick with, if you're somebody who is a long-term investor, you want to stick with stuff that has a very favorable long-term outlook. And Open Door uh, matches that. Netflix does to an extent too. We just don't think the valuation is, is super attractive on Netflix yet. Whereas on a stock like Open Door that's been completely washed out, Mm-hmm. We're getting a very attractive valuation on a company that has a ton of long-term potential to redefine the housing industry, which we think they will do. Gotcha. Well, I, again, unfortunately, the hits keep coming. Uh, you know, another hypergrowth sector that's been crushed recently is the EV market. Um, you know, the I think when we talk about EVs, there's there's the the two sides where you have uh, the traditional motor vehicle companies who are trying to start dipping their toes in the water. And then you have the luxury EV markets like, you know, Lucid and Rivian, which we've talked about before. Um, You know, they were both doing fairly well. And then again, took this kind of hit that most of the hypergrowth stocks took, you know, what is your take on, on this? 
Uh, yeah, well, so to that point, actually, um, hypergrowth tech stocks have been on a bit of a rebound here over the past few days. Uh, okay. I don't think I don't think a bottom is in, but it's definitely encouraging to see that. What we're having is. Funny enough, uh, Jim Cramer, we all know Jim Cramer, the Mad Money personality, yeah. uh, ABC guy. He, on his Mad Money show on Thursday evening, last Thursday evening, went on Mad Money and had this like little toy setup of the ARK Innovation ETF. And for those who don't know, the ARK Innovation ETF is an ETF run by Kathy Wood mm-hmm. and the Things in that fund are exclusively hypergrowth tech stocks. We're talking Zoom, Coinbase, Teladoc, Square, Block, I guess they're called now, mm-hmm. Roku, Tesla, you know, those are your core holdings. So anyways, he had this kind of like toy set up at the ARK ETF, and then he got this bottle of whiskey and kind of poured it all over the uh, ARK ETF saying- What a waste. Saying these, yeah, what a way, saying these stocks will drown in a interest, uh, in a higher interest rate environment, a rate hike cycle. Do okay. not buy. The next day, the ARK ETF rose about three or 4% on Friday. Then on Monday, it rose 9%. And here we are on Tuesday. And last I checked, it was up about another 2%. Mm-hmm. So, net, net, since Jim Cramer's kind of whiskey pour, the ARK ETF, which told nobody to buy and everybody to sell, is up about 15%. <laughs> um, The reason for this bounce, in our opinion, is short covering. That we saw a lot of the short interest in hypergrowth tech stocks has risen and accelerated over the past few months as everybody's kind of piled in saying these stocks will not work in a rate hike environment. The Fed's going to hike rates. Let's bet against hypergrowth. Let's bet against hypergrowth. Let's bet against hypergrowth. So the short interest in a lot of stocks like um, you know, like Open Door, mm-hmm. uh, like Square, like Teladoc, has risen dramatically over the past few weeks and months. Now it's risen to a point where now we have earnings season on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And last week we heard from Apple, we heard from Microsoft, we heard from ServiceNow, we heard from Atlassian. All those big tech companies reported fantastic numbers with the consistent theme being technological transformation still happening. In mm-hmm. fact, it's accelerating. It's getting better. It's getting bigger. It's getting stronger. And now this week we have, where are all the companies that are reporting? Hold on, I wrote it down. We got, <laughs> we got Google, PayPal, AMD, Electronic mm-hmm. Arts, Facebook, Spotify, Dynatrace, Amazon, Activision, Snap, Pinterest, Unity Software, yep. and so many more names reporting earnings this week. There is a fear among short sellers that really piled into their short bets against hypergrowth tech stocks that these tech earnings are going to be really strong this week. Mm -hmm. And if they are, that could create a short squeeze moment Mm -hmm. where stocks could pop. So you saw you're seeing a lot of covering ahead of the earnings reports. Okay. Because these shorts are kind of fearful that these stocks could could pop here. So it's a bit of a a minor reprieve. but the bigger picture here is that even after all these earnings reports come out, let's say they're very good. We get this massive short squeeze in hypergrowth tech stocks. These stocks rally 20, 30, 40% in a matter of weeks. That's mm-hmm. very possible. If we get that, we still think that come early March or late February, the earnings high, so to speak, mm-hmm. will wear off. And investors will then be looking at still red hot inflation and a still hawkish Fed, which is what has been scaring hypergrowth tech stocks for the past 12 months. Mm-hmm. And so we think that actually... The trajectory of hypergrowth tech stocks over the next few weeks could be this 
pretty sizable rally in the midst of earning met by selling pressure after earnings season ends to what could be a pretty sizable drop starting in early March mm-hmm. uh, on fears of, of the hawkish Fed. But on that point, we actually think that sell-off reverses course and turns into an even bigger rally over the subsequent few months because there's this whole theme out here mm-hmm. that long-duration assets, so any asset, any stock, crypto, whatever it may be, that is valued off of something that's going to happen well into the future, 2025, mm-hmm. 2030, long-duration assets do not work in rate hiking cycles mm-hmm. because when interest rates go higher, they have a disproportionately large and negative effect on the net present value of future cash flows for those companies that are based off of 2025, 2030 potential. Mm-hmm. That's finance one makes a lot of sense. And that's the consensus everybody's adopting. But interestingly enough, we looked into that. We mm-hmm. looked into the data and there have been four rate hike cycles over the past uh, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry. 30 years, since 1990. In each of those four rate hike cycles, the average returns, we looked at the average returns of the Dow Jones, the average mm-hmm. returns of the S&P 500, the average returns of the Russell 2000 Growth Index, and the average returns of the Russell 2000 Value Index. The average returns through the four rate hike cycles were highest for the Russell 2000 Growth Index. And they were lowest for the Russell 2000 value index. So contrary to popular belief, contrary to what the textbook tells you, contrary to finance 101, over the past four rate hike cycles, historically speaking, growth stocks have outperformed value stocks during those cycles. Mm -hmm. Totally counterintuitive. But the reason being, in our opinion, is that markets are forward looking. They're discounting mechanisms. They don't price things in when things happen. They price things in before things happen. Mm -hmm. So growth stocks tend to struggle leading up to a rate hike cycle because the Fed usually telegraphs rate hikes, right? They're well ahead of the market. They're saying, hey, market, we're going to hike rates. We're going to hike rates. We're going to hike rates. They preach it for months and months and months. Mm -hmm. During that preaching time before the rate hike cycle actually starts, growth stocks get slammed because they get the valuation reset. That's when the valuation reset happens. But once the Fed rips the proverbial Band-Aid off and they actually start hiking rates, the growth stocks tend to actually outperform because they've already been repriced for higher rates. And at that point in time, it's all about earnings. Earnings drive the stocks, not interest rates. And growth, growth has all the earnings. So that's why we actually think that once the Fed does start to finally hike rates, the valuation resets always happen. The ARK Innovation ETF is off 50, 60, 70%. I mean, it's been slammy, slam, slam. Mm-hmm. The valuation resets always happen. So once the rate, once the rate hikes start, now it's going to be all about earnings. And guess where all the earnings are? Zoom has the earnings. Mm-hmm. Square has the earnings. Roku has the earnings. Mm-hmm. Tesla has the earnings. Those are stocks that we think could really perform well in a rate hike cycle environment, contrary to popular belief, because they've already been repriced. And now their earnings are going to power them higher. So that's kind of how we're viewing things um, from a, yes, things have been bad, but they're starting to get better. They could get a little bit worse. But then mm-hmm. we think within the next few months, things should get a lot better for, for investors in these names. You know, I think that was a really long roundabout way to get the answer to my question. But I think that that is what you just described really is uh, kind of what we're seeing in the EV market with, you know, you have these luxury companies 
who are making these promises of these luxury EV vehicles, which are, you know, the t- as you always uh, talk about the, you know, the top innovators, the top people in their fields. Right. And, you know, it looks like maybe 2023 to 2025 is going to be those big years where EVs are going to take off. Uh, yeah, I mean, in the EV market, you're seeing a lot of innovation, a lot of disruption, um, a lot of creative destruction. And we think that names have been wiped out. Uh, Lucid has been wiped out. Rivian has been wiped out. Canoe uh, has been wiped out. Arrival has been wiped out. Um, Workhorse has been wiped out. Lord's, Lordstown Motors has been wiped out. Anybody that's an EV startup has been wiped out. Now, some of these names are great buys. Some of them are not. Again, when you think about the EV industry, it's going to look a lot like the auto industry birth of the early 1900s, where you had mm-hmm. hundreds of companies come out at the onset. And then when all was said and done, only five or six were left standing. Same is going to be true for the EV industry. You have dozens upon dozens of EV startups looking to make it big. Only a couple will be left standing. But we think names like Lucid and Rivian are obviously going to be names left standing. And they are fantastic companies with fantastic management teams, a very impressive engineering squads. Uh, their technology is, is second to none, and they're ready to start ramping production this year. So we think names like that are definitely strong buys on the dip. Rivian, a little bit less so. The valuation there is a little bit less palpable than it is on Lucid. We think the valuation on Lucid is a bit more palpable, especially because Lucid's thing is their battery. Their battery is, is supreme, right? They got the yeah. 500 plus miles of range. Uh, when you have a battery that can go uh, go in a car and power 500 plus miles of driving range, you have a battery that can do a lot of different things. Because batteries are versatile, right? They have multi uh, they're multifaceted in terms of their applications. Mm-hmm. So Lucid, we think actually has huge potential in the energy storage market, which is a market we're really excited about. We think that the battery tech they develop can be applied to the battery, the energy storage market, uh, lithium ion uh, battery energy storage solutions, and that that could be an entire another leg of growth for them, just like Tesla has their energy storage department, right? Mm-hmm. So um, we think Lucid actually has a bit more of a compelling long-term uh, story than Rivian. Having said that, both are fabulous companies. Both stocks have been wiped out. Uh, it's definitely time to start looking at, at names like that. Mm-hmm. Now, to continue on the conversation with EVs and the disruption that EVs are you know, putting into the automotive industry, uh, you talked about Kathy Wood, her the ARC EFT. Uh, she thinks that there's going to be a lot of quote unquote, creative destruction in the automotive industry moving forward. Um, what are your thoughts on on that? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Agree. Okay. Agree, agree, agree. Um, I don't think I'm as uh, bullish, so to speak, on creative destruction as, as Kathy is. I think that she's a bit more bullish on the new entrants uh, disrupting the incumbents. Uh, the reality is that it's probably going to be a balance. There's going to be someone coming to the mix. There's going to be some new entrants in the mix. But I do think that names like Lucid, mm-hmm. like Rain, like Fisker are going to take market share from incumbents. And mm-hmm. what that means is that the incumbents are going to lose share of a market that's not growing. The auto market in general is not going to grow all that quickly. In fact, it might get smaller over time as we lean into autonomous driving and transportation as a service where less and less people need cars. And the more we urbanize to the lower uh, demand for cars goes. So I do think that actually the overall auto market may shrink over the next five to 10 years. So if GM and Ford and Volkswagen, so on and so forth are losing share in that market, uh, that doesn't imply great things for, for their stock prices. Now, the flip side of that equation is that 
EVs should be a more profitable business than diesel cars. Uh, mm-hmm. At scale, you can make electric vehicles at much higher gross margins. Tesla's operating at 30% gross margins. That's historically been unheard of in the auto industry. So if you can keep that 30% gross margin across the industry and you can maintain a 15% or lower OPEX rate, then you're talking about 15%, maybe 20% operating margins across the auto industry. Whereas historically, we're talking about maybe 5 to 10% operating margins or lower. So you're talking about potentially doubling their profitability potential per car. Uh, having said that, if the number of cars sold uh, shrinks, it's kind of an offsetting headwind tailwind factor there. And I think that's why we have very mixed outlooks on a lot of the legacy auto giants. Whereas Kathy's really bearish on them. Mm-hmm. We just more have mixed outlooks on them because we do think they'll get a boost on the profitability side of things. What what So just to kind of conclude on the EVs, what makes this the the creative destruction something that could potentially happen? What makes this time different? Because historically, when we look at the automotive industry, it is, you know, the same, we've had the same name brands for the last, you know, 50, 100 years. And we've driven the same cars for the last 150 years. Okay. uh, We haven't driven electric cars. We've Mm -hmm. driven, you know, gas powered cars forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Gas stations have been around for a very long time. So uh, what allows, this is a great discussion more broadly of what allows for disruption, innovation allows for disruption. When you have new innovations and new technologies and new platforms come to market and they're actually viable, that allows for disruption because oftentimes the legacy incumbents are not the ones pioneering that disruption. They're simply not incentivized to. If you have a cash cow, you're going to melt the cash cow. You're not going to think about raising a new cow, mm-hmm. right? Humans are very short-sighted. They're, they want profits now. They want money now. They want to be rich now. And so when I have a cash cow that's giving me money now, I don't care about the next cow. I'm just going to melt this cow till it dies. <laughs> Meanwhile, you got the hungry startup that doesn't have a cash cow yeah. that is desperate to find a cash cow. So they look for innovations. They mm-hmm. look for disruptions. They look for new technologies. And eventually, one or two of them stumble upon something that's groundbreaking. When that comes to market is when you get wide-scale disruption. Um, so I think that's what makes this time different is we finally have innovations that are viable replacements to the status quo of gas-powered cars. Gotcha. Well, one of the things that we, moving on, one of the things we talked about last week, and and again, we're, I want to touch base a little bit about because I think that after last week's conversation, a lot of people are curious on your take of uh, what has happened on the broader market health. Um, so... Uh, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, as a result of it, we're going to have potential rate hikes in March. Um, has this so-called, you know, craziness in the market passed this or are we looking at, again, more, you know, ebbs and flows in the next few months? Well, as as we mentioned in the previous episodes, Aaron, uh, 2022 is going to be defined by a tug of war between valuations and um, uh, earnings growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, multiples have to come in because of interest rate hikes. There's a question about how much they have to come in because there's a question of how much the Fed's going to hike rates. We're of the belief they're not going to hike rates that many times. Some analysts are out there saying six, seven hikes in 2022. We think that is complete cuckoo. Uh, we think it's more like two or three rate hikes in 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we think key multiples don't have to come in a lot, but they still have to come in some. Uh, and then earnings per share growth. Um, we're not terribly confident on it, but the reason the market's kind of stabilized is that we've had really good earnings. Um, mm. The first week of earnings was not so great. Netflix did not kick things off the right way, but the subsequent <laughs> week was 
amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, Apple, record numbers. Microsoft, record numbers. ServiceNow, record numbers. Atlassian, record numbers. And the best part about it is they all gave great guides. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not just they were... because The important thing to understand about earnings is that uh, everybody pays attention to revenue and EPS beats, but that's kind of hocus pocus bogus now. Like it's not important. What's important is the guy. What's important is are things getting better or are things getting worse? Mm -hmm. Netflix, for example, beat across the board. They beat on every metric. Yet the stock collapsed and it spooked the entire market because the guide was weak. They said things are going to slow down in the first quarter. Mm -hmm. Microsoft, that Lagian service, now Apple all said the opposite. They said things are going to get better this quarter. Mm -hmm. In fact, Apple had really profound comments. Tim Cook had really profound comments saying that supply chain pressures are easing and okay. inflation pressures are improving. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the world's largest hardware manufacturing company. There is no company on the planet and arguably no man on the planet that has a better handle on the supply chain disruptions globally than mm -hmm. Tim and Apple. And so if they're saying supply chains are getting better, then that's that's really positive commentary. And mm -hmm. then we also got a bunch of PMI data this morning, purchase manufacturing index data this morning. Uh, the German PMI, the Italian PMI, the English PMI, the French PMI, the Spanish PMI, the Eurozone PMI, US PMI, and pretty much all of them are pointing to improving supply chain issues. Now, why is that important? That's important because supply chain issues are a big driver of inflation. If supply chain issues improve, inflation pressures ease, which means the Fed doesn't have to hike rates that much, which means valuations, PE multiples don't have to come in as much. Couple that rationale with the fact that earnings are all of a sudden starting to look pretty good, mm -hmm. then this equation of PE times EPS equals stock price, PE multiple doesn't have to come down that much. EPS might go up more than expected. That's why you're seeing stock prices start to head higher over the last week and a half. Um, and that's why you're starting to see a bit more optimism in the market. Mm -hmm. uh, where do we go from here? I reiterate what I said just a couple, you know, maybe like 10, 15 minutes ago. We think strong earnings will propel optimism back into the market. We mm -hmm. think stocks will head higher on the back of strong earnings in February. But we do think that that rally will be met with selling pressure after the earnings high wears I was going to say, is that going to be a temporary thing, though? Uh, it's so it's, it's going to look like this. I mean, we're going to go up. Let's like, these are theoretical numbers. Yep. Do not quote me on these. We'll go up 10%. <laughs> yep. We'll come down five and then we'll go up 20. Okay. That's how we see things in Got that it. we're going to rally here on earnings. Mm -hmm. We're going to get a pullback once everyone gets afraid of the Fed. Like, oh my God, what's going to happen when they hike? This is uh -huh. early March. Then they're finally going to hike. And everyone's going to be like, whoa, that, that wasn't so bad now, was it? You know, 25 basis point doesn't hurt. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the market's going to be ready to get in this rate hike groove. And then that's when we're going to see the secular stable growth that we have seen in stocks for the past several years. Um, so that's kind of the trajectory we see um, over the next few months. And that's why we believe that the Fed fallout creates opportunities um, because we believe we are at or very near a bottom in the markets and that things will get better here. Um, and when they do get better, they will get substantially better, not just a little bit better. So we do think that the Fed fallout creates some some pretty compelling opportunities. But again, you got to wait out some volatility here and just kind of embrace it with both arms. Got it. Well, you know, let's shift gears real quick uh, to cryptos. Uh, you know, Biden's coming in with the regulation hammer, so to speak. Um, he he called it a matter of national security. Um, is this bad news for cryptos? No. 
Okay. Contrary to popular belief, again, we think it's not bad news for cryptos. Um, we actually believe the best path forward on the regulatory front for cryptos is for governments to, thus far, it's been no regulation or ban cryptos. Okay. But the best thing for cryptos, regulatory speaking, is the middle ground of regulation. Uh -huh. Let's regulate them, not ban them, still allow them, but create a regulatory framework which will add stability to the market, add transparency to the market, and in doing so, will allow more participants to be comfortable with and come into the market. Okay, It seems that's what the White House is doing. The White House is thinking about adding regulatory framework to the digital asset market without banning them, and that is a positive step for mm -hmm. the market. India is doing the same thing. So India just released uh, a proposal to put a 30% tax on, on cryptos and NFTs and all things digital asset related on income related to those, those assets. And while that may seem kind of scary because that puts those assets into their income earned from those assets into the highest income bracket in India, mm -hmm. we actually think, again, it's a good thing because it shows that India is not going to ban them. You mm -hmm. know, the worst thing that could happen here is a ban um, and without regulation, you're never going to get mainstream acceptance because a lot of people simply won't get into things that aren't regulated because they don't feel safe. So the best thing that can happen is this middle ground regulation. And we think the world is starting to pivot towards that. And that's why you didn't see Bitcoin react negatively to the White House news. Mm -hmm. The White House news hit, Bitcoin hardly moved. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin's actually up since the news hit. So mm -hmm. um, I think that you're seeing the market digest it in a very good way. And we think that's the right way to digest this news. So my question when it comes to regulating crypto is I think the conversations that that always kind of comes up with when you talk about cryptocurrency is the idea of decentralization, the, the idea of coming away from, you know, big financial institutions that are regulated. How does regulation play into the idea of decentralization? Uh, yeah, so that's where things get a real tricky. Uh, you got to walk this fine line of regulation, decentralization, because full decentralization would imply no regulation, no uh, regulation, and full regulation would imply no decentralization. Yeah, I think there there is a there's a yin and yang harmony here to be reached. That okay. some regulation keeps bad actors out. I mean, nobody would agree. I believe nobody would agree that rug pulls in the crypto market, like mm -hmm. the Squid Game rug pull. Do you remember the Squid Game rug pull? Yeah. Yeah, so there was, you know, the hugely popular Netflix show Squid Game. Mm -hmm. After it debuted and everybody was talking about it, and it was a global phenomenon. There were these anonymous developers who launched this Squid Game token that basically mm -hmm. said they were creating this kind of metaverse game where you would play the Squid Game mm -hmm. uh, and you would get Squid tokens back. The problem they're in is that once you bought Squid Token, you couldn't sell Squid Token. <laughs> and so it created this insane buying pressure because there was no selling pressure literally none caused the token to skyrocket meanwhile the guys who developed it guys the folks who developed it uh held all the tokens basically and then they just pulled the rug and sold all their tokens at the peak mm -hmm. and it went to zero yep so i don't think anybody would agree that that is good <laughs> full decentralization uh cannot stop that we've okay. seen Rug pools continue to happen in a fully decentralized model. Mm -hmm. So regulation is a value add to the sense that it can stop the uh, rug pools like that. It can stop scams. It can stop corruption. Mm -hmm. uh, but it can't overstep. So what does that middle ground look like? I have no clue. 
And okay. no, nobody really does. We're figuring it out. It's like we were figuring out the internet 20 years ago. We're still figuring out blockchain. We're still figuring out cryptos. Mm -hmm. I know the answer between regulation and decentralization lies in some harmony between the two. Does that mean 50-50, 80-20, 20-80, 30-70? Mm -hmm. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. But I have confidence that over the next few months and years, we're going to figure it out. The world's going to figure out how to harmonize decentralization and regulation to create blockchain projects, economies that work for everybody, are fair, and don't include rug pulls like the Squid Game rug pull. Mm -hmm. You know, we've also heard uh, a lot of chatter moving on about a so-called Ethereum killer. Uh, do you ha think there's any merit to that? Um, Ethereum is here to stay. Let's make that abundantly clear. Ethereum mm -hmm. is a very solid layer one and it is here to stay. Mm -hmm. Having said so that- So real quick, before you go any further, and I know that this is something that, I, you know, every time we talk about layer one, layer two, I have to take a quick second to reframe my mind. But for people who aren't as savvy as you, I'm not even going to say us, but you, can you just go over real quick the, what designer coins are and, and the idea between layer one and layer two? So think of layer one as the infrastructure. Okay. Uh, think of it as like data centers or cloud compute um, okay. in, in the internet. Uh, it is the platforms upon which people can build blockchain projects, build decentralized applications, okay. build those things. Um, so Ethereum is king layer one. It gotcha. is the, the platform upon which a lot of developers develop decentralized applications or create NFTs so, uh, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Um, so Ethereum is not going away anytime soon. Um, but because it is, it became so popular so quickly, uh, and it was not designed for scaling. Mm -hmm. It has usually high gas fees or transaction fees in the platform. Okay. It can be quite slow. And those challenges are quite annoying to a lot of developers. Mm -hmm. So there's been an exodus, definitely. Uh, the data shows this. And among the folks we talked to, we know a lot of people in the, in the community that are developing um, on the blockchain, a lot of devs are moving away from Ethereum. And mm -hmm. there's Cardano, they're building on Cardano. Solana is a really popular one, they're building on Solana. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're seeing definitely this exodus away from Ethereum. So the way we look at it, Ethereum killer, the layer one market is going to grow tremendously over mm -hmm. the next 10 years. Because as the blockchain economy grows, demand for the infrastructure which builds decentralized applications will mm -hmm. obviously grow too. Mm -hmm. The whole layer one market's gonna grow. This whole pie is gonna get way bigger. Mm -hmm. But Ethereum's slice of the pie is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. That's mm -hmm. our because there are other layer ones that are addressing the challenges of um, or the shortcomings of Ethereum and doing so very uh, robustly, and that's attracting more developers. So then the question with Ethereum becomes. Does its market share erosion offset the growth of the overall pie, mm -hmm. right? Because if market share erosion is more severe than the growth of the pie, mm -hmm. Ethereum is not a great investment. Yeah. If the pie grows by more than Ethereum loses market share, then Ethereum is a great investment. Mm -hmm. We think that Ethereum is a great investment. So we think the pie is going to grow a lot, a lot more quickly than the share of uh, the Ethereum share of the pie uh, decreases. Having said that, we do believe that other layer ones that are simultaneously a part of this growing pie and growing their share of the pie are actually better investments 
um, than Ethereum. So we do like some other layer ones more than Ethereum. Solana is high on our list. We think Solana is a really interesting layer one. Mm-hmm. So uh, Ethereum is great, but we think there there are better layer ones out there. Ethereum killer is an overused term, mm-hmm. but Ethereum alternative is is an appropriate term that we would like to use and think okay. is, uh, can guide people's uh, smart investing in the crypto universe. So, uh, so okay, you talked about Solana, you talked about Cardano. Uh, are there any other cryptos that you have on your radar right now that maybe aren't at either layer twos or other layer ones that, that are piquing your interest as you, you know, continue to delve into this new sector? Yeah, I mean, there there are quite a few of uh, cryptos on our radar right now. I think the name of the game in the crypto markets is selectivity. Okay. Um, we've, we've been over this before. Mm-hmm. Uh crypto market is very similar to where the dot-com market was in the late 90s. That means a shakeout is coming. Uh, that shakeout will wipe out a lot of cryptos and it will present amazing buying opportunities in other cryptos. We're starting to get really um, bullish on a certain group of high quality cryptos. I can't, for the purposes of our own portfolio, for the purposes of our subscribers and our clients, I cannot disclose a lot of these names, but I can say that in certain high quality projects, we are getting very bullish on the opportunities presented right now. So, so what are the, what are the things that you look for in these? In what are, what are the things that you look for when somebody says to you, Luke, Hey, I got this coin. I think it's going to be a great coin. I think it's going to take off in the, in the next, you know, five, 10 years. It ha- it's going to, what do you, what do you look at? What are you looking at in those coins when somebody brings to you something that you've never heard of before? That's, that's a fabulous question, Aaron. Um, what are we looking for? One, give me something that's tangible and real today. I don't want hype and a fairy tale dream of what's going to happen in 2030. You can give me that. If you're going to give me that, show me what you're building today. Mm-hmm. Show me it's operational today. Show me that it's working today. So that's why we like Sandbox and um, Decentraland quite a mm-hmm. bit is that they do have this fairy tale pipeline dream of building this digital world, the metaverse. But there's something right? that exists today and for people yeah, to participate in. There is something that exists today. You can go online. You can play in those worlds. You, mm-hmm. you can interact with those games. D5 Kingdoms, the ticker is Jewel. That's mm-hmm. another one that's very, it's operational. Uh, so I need something operational. If you don't okay. have something operational today and you're just feeding me a pipeline dream, get out of here. Because that sounds a lot like people who just bought a .com domain in 1999 and weren't actually selling anything to the .com domain, weren't monetizing that .com domain, just simply said, we have a .com domain and we're going to do something special. Not good enough anymore. Okay, not going to mm-hmm. cut it. So give me something real. Give me something tangible. Um, two, we do not like anonymous developers. Okay. <laughs> This whole idea, you know, Satoshi was anonymous. And so I think it's like cool in the Bitcoin community and the crypto community to be anonymous. I don't like that because it doesn't give me security in who's building it. Because the Mm -hmm. reality is the blockchain economy, the crypto universe is going to change a lot, like Mm -hmm. so much over the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And when you have a lot of change, that requires a lot of adaptation which is a result of strong execution. How do I as an investor have faith in strong execution if I don't know who's behind the platform, who the mm-hmm. main devs are, right? Yep. So I want to see a, a, a project that does not have anonymous devs, that is not just some icon uh, on a Twitter account, mm-hmm. and instead is a person who I can background check, who I can vet, or mm-hmm. a team who I can background check and I can vet, and who if 
you know, push comes to shove, I can have faith in to execute through bull markets, bear markets, good times, bad times, so on and so forth. So give me a good team, a team that I can check. Mm -hmm. That's the second part of the equation. And then three, we want to see um, asymmetric opportunities. We want to see market caps that are low relative to addressable markets that are huge. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these cryptos we think have overshot their addressable market potential, meaning that while their addressable market is bigger than the current market cap, uh, right. they're, what's being priced in is that they're going to own the market or dominate the market or be a, a huge player in the market. We want to see cryptos that have massive upside, even in the case that they only own a small portion of their addressable market. Uh, so really, you know, strong asymmetry on uh, those on those cryptos. Those are pretty much the three things that we're looking for right now that we think are the most important elements of a crypto. Beyond that, we're looking for just discrete catalysts and discrete opportunities, um, such as, oh, I don't want to say anymore because I might give away some picks. And I don't really <laughs> All right. I would myself there. No, totally. No, I, I get it. And, and I think that, again, even... For anybody who's looking to just invest, whether it's cryptos or whether it's some, a hyper growth stock, you know, what you're talking about is is something that I think that, you know, some people may overlook. Do, am I somebody's investing in a company, but they don't have anything to show for it or somebody's investing in a company and there's, you know, just a, a, a single person on the on the website that's the developer when, again, as to your point, it takes a team to build something that's going to be successful. Yeah, well, I, I think on that on that front. um the hyper growth tech stock meltdown of the past 12 months serves as a dire warning sign to crypto investors. Okay. Uh, let's go back to Open Door for a second. All right. Over the past 12 months, Open Door stock has crashed from, uh, I mean, it reached a high of like 35 bucks and it crashed to about $8 and change. So that's a massive wipeout. Yet during those 12 months, Open Door, every single quarter, significantly grew the number of homes it sold, significantly grew the number of homes it bought, expanded to multiple cities, grew revenues at triple digits, improved profit margins, uh, improved profitability, and uh, blew analysts away with exceptionally strong guides in a housing market that was red hot. Operationally, the company did absolutely nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. Bad results. Yet the stock still crashed. So imagine... In the crypto universe, if a similar anti-risk or risk-off sentiment hits mm -hmm. and you're left holding a crypto that isn't operationally awesome, that actually has no fundamentals to fall back on, mm -hmm. what the wipeout there could be like. And so that's what scares us in investing in really speculative crypto cryptos at this moment mm -hmm. is that. We're fine investing in, in high quality cryptos because we know that if there is a drawdown, if there is a retreat, if there is a bear market, we have confidence to buy the dip. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's all about. You have to have confidence. A good investor only invests in things that he is willing to buy more of if it drops 20%. He or she is willing to buy more of if it drops 20%. That they are willing to buy more of if it drops 50%. That they are willing to bet the farm on if it drops 80%. Mm -hmm. That's what investor does does a good investor does not invest in something that if it drops 10 percent, they lose their shorts and say i'm out goodbye sayonara that's not investing that's trading and if that's what you want to do then understand you have to have a near-term horizon 
a huge risk appetite, and a willingness to lose lots of money without ever regaining it. When you're investing, you're investing for the long haul. You understand that near-term drops are part of the game and that you have the utmost confidence in the long run. You're going to make your money back and then some, and it's going to be a fantastic wealth-creating opportunity for you. So that's how we approach the crypto markets. We want to have confidence that if these things drop a lot more, a lot more potentially, we are confident by the day. Well, I think that these conversations definitely are helping our listeners at least get the fundamentals of what it means to be a good investor. Um, you know, I mean, I'm learning something new every day, uh, just in the cursory research that I'm doing, just to keep up with these conversations that I have with you. Um, mm. But any last words before we wrap? Um, not that I can think of, Aaron. You know, this is another fun, fun episode. I really enjoy doing these every week. It's great just to, I could honestly talk about this stuff for, for hours upon hours upon hours. And, um, your ear will probably fall off and bleed a little bit, but I'll, <laughs> I, I love this stuff. Like I said, I got this notebook. I got lots to talk about. So let's, let's keep doing this. Let's keep informing people and, uh, let's stay true to the authenticity behind our, our beliefs and our investments and, and what we think can really help people out in, in this market. Definitely. I, I love it. And I, we just want to thank everybody for listening. If you have any questions or comments for Luke, uh, please leave them in the comment section. You know, we'd love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover uh, and see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Until then, uh, don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Bye, all.